0: That was Psalm 9. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to have your word, your very words, spoken to us as we read it and as we understand it by the work of your Spirit. Father, now as we come, Lord, we pray that you will speak to us and we pray that you will open our hearts to to ourselves, that we will know and see. Help us, Father, to trust in the God of justice. And to entrust our our case into your hands. Thank you that you are faithful. And we can pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in times of national calamities, horrific sins and crimes and large-scale sins, you and I, we need a big God. We need unshakable confidence that our God is on the throne. This is where all of God's attributes become especially important to us. For example, a church that focuses only or solely on God's love, God's grace, his mercy, will be deficient. They will be malnutritioned. They will not take things like sin seriously, or they will think that sin is not that big of a deal. Also, they will have no way of understanding or how to deal with personal suffering or national calamity. But on the flip side, a church that only focuses on God's holiness, God's judgments, God's wrath, and even God's sovereignty will be deficient. They will be malnutritioned as Christians. They will become perhaps like a second group of Pharisees without mercy, loving kindness, or patience with people. Where can we go to find the perfect balance, if I can use that word, of God's attributes? Where can we look to see... The uniting of God's holiness and love, his patience and seriousness of sin, only at one place, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing reveals God's attributes so beautifully, so sufficiently than the cross of Christ. So churches that are Christ-centered and cross-centered will not be toppling over to one extreme or the other, right? They will feel... God's intense hatred for sin by looking at the cross. There God crushed his own son. He didn't even spare his own son when he bore our sins. But also there we see the unfathomable love and grace of God. Grace is can be remembered as an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense the judge takes us, takes our place he accepts the death penalty for us that is what grace is like but that 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 line isn't isn't complete we must add another element to the definition of grace it's not just God's riches at Christ's expense it is God's riches at Christ's expense for people who deserve only his wrath that's the full picture God's riches at Christ's expense to people who deserve only His wrath. William P. Farley, in his book Gospel Powered Parenting, actually uses a very helpful illustration of what grace really is and looks like. Imagine a man who has been a serial rapist, a serial murderer of women and children, standing before a judge. And then the judge takes the place of that murderer. And rapists and say, I will take the death penalty for him. And then that judge empties out his life savings to pay for that man's a holiday for that man on the island of Hawaii or Mauritius for 30 years. Fully paid. That's a, that's a small picture of what God did for us. That picture doesn't even compare to what God did for us and gave us in Christ. But, beloved, this is the God of the Bible. This is the God we need to know and to trust at all times. And the times and seasons that we are living in should cause us to lean on the God of justice and grace. So, our psalm, our Psalm 9, will help us shape our theology about God's holiness, God's justice, and his wrath. We've already seen in verses 1 to 12 that David praises God for his justice. God, David praises God. For his justice. He praised him as he recounted his wonderful deeds in the past. He praised him because God judged the wicked and he is a stronghold for the oppressed. Not one drop of blood is spilt on this earth without God knowing it and without God going to judge it. Jesus is coming again and all will be judged for what they have done, including us. But interestingly, the psalm now shifts from praising God, the God of justice, to praying to The God of justice from verses 13 to 20 and here we see David gives us two prayers there are two prayers here one at verses 13 to 14 and one at the very end verses 19 to 20 and then right in the middle David again reflects upon God's judge how God judges and his judgments so we will look at those two points if you could say first we'll again just like we looked at David's example in praising God now we're going to look at his example in praying to God and then reflect on how God judges. So let's first consider David's example. Here is David's example of prayer to the God of justice in verses 13 to 14. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. So, the the setting of the psalm is David has just recently experienced the victory over his enemies. God has delivered him in verses three to four. God has made his enemies to perish and that, that caused him to praise. But now he asked God to see his affliction. So it's as if there's a current problem as well. There was a past faithfulness of God and there's a current enemy that is still threatening and hating David. And he asked God to see it. Now that doesn't mean God doesn't see it or God is not aware of it because God sees everything before it happens. God knows everything. But rather, he's asking God to pay attention to it, to not just know about it and not do anything about it. He said, Lord, are you seeing this? Are you are you paying attention? It's almost that's the way David is praying to what is happening right now. And he's asking God to act, not just to notice it, but to act, to help David, to be gracious to him, to be merciful to him, because even now as David was writing the psalm, he was afflicted by those who hate him. Now, here is an important lesson we need to learn from David right here. David believes that prayer moves God's hand. David is not fatalistic. He doesn't say, well, if it is my time, it is my time. So it doesn't matter if I pray about it, right? Right? No, David turns to God in his affliction and asks him to be merciful to him, to be gracious to him. So here's the first lesson we can learn from David. The first lesson of David's example is this God uses prayer. God uses prayer. You and I should never think like this. Well, God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. So it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I pray or if I evangelize. It also doesn't matter if I try to wear a mask or get the vaccine or keep social distancing because my time is my time. I can, it doesn't matter what I do. Nothing can change the day of my death. Now, there might be some other reasons why you don't want to take the, take the vaccine or things like that. But God's sovereignty over all things As an excuse not to be responsible shouldn't be one of those reasons why you're not willing to do that. That's hyper-Calvinism. And it is not biblical. Yes, God is sovereign even over this the tiniest molecule of this creation. But He uses means to accomplish His sovereign will. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. In fact, to think that it really doesn't matter what you do because God is sovereign and God will protect you or... God has determined the days of your life. It's the devil's theology. It's the devil's theology. Remember when Jesus was on the top of the mount of, of the temple mount? The devil quoted Psalm 91 and said, "You can jump. God is going to God promised you're not going to get hurt. It really doesn't matter what you do, Jesus. God already said he's going to take care of it. Don't you worry, just jump. God will never allow anything bad to happen to you." And Jesus response is right. He says, "It is written." You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And beloved, I think many people today, charismatic and reformed, have the devil's hermeneutic. It is the devil's Bible study method that takes God's promises and then use them to destroy our responsibility. This car is protected by Psalm 91. Or God promised that every weapon formed against me shall not prosper. And they walk out thinking it doesn't matter what they do because God has already promised. Now the same is true with hyper-Calvinists. God has already chosen those whom He will save. So it doesn't matter if I evangelize. It doesn't matter if I pray for the lost. Nothing can change His will. Or God has already decided when I will die. So come what may, I'm going to be reckless and not care about health protocols and things like that. No, beloved. That is not biblical. God is sovereign, but He uses means. God is sovereign, but He uses prayer. I believe that God has chosen his elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. I do believe that. But that he will bring his elect through the means of ordinary efforts of of his people, like evangelism and prayer. Let me give you an example of the Bible. Um, Paul talked about evangelism and God's sovereignty like this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. It says, Therefore, I endure everything. (laughs) That's responsibility. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, David and Paul were not fatalistic. They spared no effort to pray, to reach out, to fulfill their responsibilities as the children of God. So beloved, let us learn this lesson from David. Let us not waver on this simple principle. God is sovereign, but he uses means. Let us be a people Much in prayer because God is sovereign. Let us pray like this. God, you are sovereign. Everything is possible to you. Nothing is too difficult for you. Not a single bird falls to the ground apart from you. So Lord, be gracious to us. Spare us. Save the lost. Bring them in because you are sovereign and nothing is too hard for you. Let his sovereignty really be the confidence of our prayers. So that's the first lesson we can learn from David is he believes prayer works. God answers and hears prayer. Here's the second lesson we can learn from David's example. When you are in affliction, hope in the resurrection. In affliction, hope in the resurrection. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 9. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death now again here we see the seed of the truth which will fully blossom in the new testament the doctrine of the resurrection so death here is seen in the bible often as a, a dwelling place for the dead or, or sheol is like the dwelling place of the dead with like gates so the gates open and if you are at the gates of death you are very close or you are going to enter and you die So David could have simply meant this. He could have just simply said in verse 13, Lord, I was so close to death. I was at the very gates of death. I was about to die. Oh, you who lift me up from that. You spared me. You spared my life from dying, right? That's what he could have meant. Um, But I think that phrase, lifting someone up from the gates of death, is also an echo of the resurrection. Because notice this contrast in verse 17 to 18. It says, The wicked shall return to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. All the nations that forget God. And then he contrasts it with verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Okay, do you see the contrast? So he says the poor will not always be forgotten. It implies that it looks like they are forgotten. It looks like God is ignoring them. That they hope, they don't have hope. They they are perished. They are dying under the oppression of the wicked. But it says, I'm confident that the God who lifts me up from the gates of death will not always forget them. He will raise them up from the dead. And I think we can believe and be confident in this view because David's view of David himself believed in the resurrection. Look at chapter 16 quickly. So another Psalm of David in verse 16, chapter chapter 16, verse 10 to 11. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God will not abandon us to Sheol forever. Rather, God will show us the path of life, the the way through death into a new life with Christ um, in a resurrected life. And that really was fulfilled in Christ, remember? When Christ was has died, he has risen again. Now think about Christ. That is where the the Old Testament doctrine of the resurrection fully blossomed. Christ died a horrible, gruesome death for our sins. That is what we deserve to experience. You and I deserve to feel a pain similar to crucifixion for all of our eternities. That's, That's what we deserve for our sins. But Christ came and took that punishment, that sin on himself. When you look at the cross, it, 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 could, it not only seemed as if God forgotten and abandoned Jesus, on the cross, God actually abandoned him. In reality, abandoned his son. Christ called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So on the cross, God crushed his only son, He poured out the fullness of His wrath that we should have experienced. We should have cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should have felt that feeling of abandonment from God. But He didn't. This is beyond our imagination. We will never experience that because Christ already experienced it in our place. Praise God for our great Savior. But then on the third day, God lifted up his son from the gates of death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was the fulfillment of Psalm 16 when he says, your holy one shall not see corruption. God didn't allow it. Christ's resurrection in the Bible is called the first fruits of, of our resurrection. Notice 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who, who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is the first of many to come. Heaven will not be inhabited by a disembodied spirit or spirits. No, heaven will be on earth. Heaven will be a physical place, indwelt by God's people with physical bodies, enjoying pleasures beyond our imagination. Perhaps here is a helpful illustration I can give you. So some mornings uh, I like to wake up early, even before the sun rises, When I see that beautiful twilight of the sunrise, that glow of orange that slowly creeps up onto the horizon, my hope rises. Day is coming. The night is almost over. I have assurance that day is coming because I've seen the first light of the day in the morning. Beloved, that's in a similar way, that's how Christ's resurrection is. It's like that first light, that twilight of the, of the sunrise. His resurrection is the assurance that a new creation is coming. The night of suffering and death and crying and mourning is almost over. His resurrection has inaugurated a new creation. He is making all things new. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we can have assurance of that because Christ rose from the dead. This is so important to believe especially in intense pain and in intense suffering. We need to believe this and hold on to this. That was Paul's confidence. When God gave Paul more than he can handle, yes, God sometimes does give us more than we can handle. Listen to how Paul sp- spoke about that in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. It says, For we do not want you to be un- unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead God gave Paul so much trials that he even despaired of life itself that's that's giving someone more than they can handle. This is going to kill me. I I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. This affliction is so great, I am going to die. But Paul says that that affliction was to make him rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. God in his mercy sometimes gives us more than we can handle so that our faith in the God who raises the dead can be strengthened. Or perhaps I can say it like this. God might in his mercy give you a foretaste of dying with your afflictions so that your hope will be in the God who raises the dead. Listen to this great quote by William P. Farley in his book Hidden in the Gospel about the hope of the resurrection. He says, hope matters. At some point in life we will experience problems like depression, financial shortage, sickness, old age, cancer, relational conflict, persecution, or Alzheimer's disease. Some couples are barren. Others have children who die young. We live in a fallen world. When these things happen, our self will preach, and it is fatal to listen. How should we respond? When trouble comes, don't listen to yourself. The self will look at circumstances and preach despair, hopelessness, and discouragement. Instead, talk back to yourself. Preach the hope. Of the resurrection so beloved when you see great calamities when you see national sin when everything around you is more than you can handle preach the hope of the resurrection to yourself when we pray to the god of justice look to the horizon and see the sunrise of christ's resurrection day is coming and he is coming soon so we learn that god uses prayer And that in our affliction, we should hope in the resurrection. But here's the third lesson we can learn from David and his prayers: in affliction, pray for justice. In affliction, pray for justice. Look at verse 19 to 20. At the end, he says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Salaam. David is asking for a very simple thing here. He says, Lord, let people realize that they are not God. Oh, Lord, let people realize that they cannot act or think like they wish without punishment. Let the nations know that they are but men. It is pride that causes great calamity. It is pride that causes great scale sins. Just glance over at chapter 10 quickly from verse 4. Here we see the connection between pride and wickedness. Chapter 10, verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart what? God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And then verse, yeah, verse, that's verse 11. Do you see what? this? This is the connection to when people think they are God. They do things like Hitler. They do things like the riots and the the looting. That's what pride does. Letting people think that they can do whatever they want without consequences. So David is simply asking God, God, help them to not think like that. (laughs) Sober them. I think this is a beautiful way we can pray for people in this time. Lord, you oppose the proud. Humble them. Bring them down to their knees. Let them realize they are flesh and blood. That from dust they were taken and to dust they will return. And that's actually a good prayer to pray because if God humbles them, the Bible says God gives grace to the humble. So it's another way to pray for their salvation. Think of Paul. God did this with Paul. Paul on his way to kill Christians. Jesus came and he sobered him. He struck him with blindness so that he could be saved. And if God can save a Paul, he can save anyone. Anyone. So, beloved, in great affliction, learn to entrust your case to God and his justice. Ask God to humble the proud. Ask God to save many by his mercy. Ask God to deliver the oppressed who cry out to him during this time. Remember verse 12 of Psalm 9 that says, For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Here's the final lesson we can learn from David's prayer. David prays so that he can praise God. <laughs> so let me say it again. David prays so that he can praise God more. Look at verse carefully at verse 14. Verse 14. So why is God why is he praying for mercy? Why is he praying for God to save him from his affliction? Verse 14. So that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. He's back in verse 1 that says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. So what David is saying is, God, hear my prayers. Deliver me. Judge my enemies and save the oppressed so that I have more reasons to praise you. God, my heart's desire is for you. God, I'm praying for this because you are the greatest longing of my heart. As a deer pants for flowing water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I haven't realized this, but this is how the Lord's prayer is really structured. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That prayer is, is the single most important thing you can pray for in the Lord's Prayer. It is the first in the prayer, and also everything else in the Lord's Prayer supports that. In other words, Lord, let your kingdom come so that your name might be honored. Lord, let your will be done on earth as in heaven so that your name will be honored. Lord, give me my daily bread because how can I honor you if I go about hungry and if I die? Lord, give me my bread so that I can glorify your name, that I can honor you. Lord, my sins are a barrier between glorifying your name. So please, Lord, forgive me my sins. Take it away, just as I forgive others so that your name might be glorified. Lord, if I sin in the future, I will bring dishonor to your name. So Lord, please don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil so that I may glorify your name, that your name might be beautiful and look worthy as it really is. That should be our greatest longing in everything, Lord, as we bring relief to people in KZN, as we bless people with food, oh God, let our good works as the church shine before the world so that people might see our good works and glorify you who is in heaven. Lord, let the glory of your wife, let the glory of your bride shine so brightly before unbelievers that Christ might draw many to him, that he might be glorified, that our bridegroom might look look as beautiful as he really is. That should be the reason why we pray for anything else, for people to be saved. Lord, save more people. Why? That more people can praise you. That more people can add their voice to the triune God who is glorious. Increase your praises by increasing salvation. Save people to show your majesty. Let people join us in our joy of worshiping God and finding our our greatest joy and longing in Him. Do you see? That's how we should pray. That's a lesson we can learn. God, please be merciful. Be gracious to me so that I may recount all your praises. Oh, beloved, let us be much in prayer in all seasons. Let us pray because we are a people who believe that prayer works, that God answers prayer. God hears us when we pray. Let us pray especially in times of suffering and affliction, putting our hope in the resurrection, knowing Christ is coming. Let us pray like David, entrusting our case into God's hands, asking God to humble the proud and save them. And let us pray much so that we may have more reasons to praise our blessed God. So that's what we can learn from David's example. Let's close our time together by considering how God judges the wicked. David now, after his example, he turns and reflects upon how God judges the wicked, how he is righteous. what he says is that God often judges the wicked by letting the wicked experience the consequences of their own sins. Notice that in verse 15 to 16. It says, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works, listen, of their own hands. Sometimes, the way God judges the wicked in this world is by doing nothing. He lets go, He removes his restraining grace off of people and gives them over to the desires of their sinful hearts. That is by far the scariest thing God can do for you, with you, to leave you alone. Romans 1 verse 18 has the same message. Romans 1 from verse 18 to 32. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed. Notice the present tense. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he says how God's wrath is revealed in verse 24, 26, and 28 of Romans 1. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26 for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are un- contrary to nature. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Can you imagine anything scarier than that? God said, says, oh, you want that sin? You can have it. I will give it to you. I will give you this sin. But I will also give you the full fruit that that sin brings. I will give you a taste of death in your life, in your body, in your family, in your marriage, in every aspect. You will be drinking the fruit of death as you enjoy your own sin. I'm leaving. I'm putting off my hand. I'm giving you over into your own wickedness, your own sins. I'm going to let you experience the very consequences of your own sin. That is how God judges the wicked. Often, not just so, when we think of God's judgments, we shouldn't just think about that great judgment day when he comes and every knee will bow and sunken face. We should even think about this right now. God judges many people now by letting them experience the awfulness of sin. That's what the scripture means when it says that God will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. That doesn't mean God punishes the children for their father's sins. No, rather God allows the children to experience the consequences of their parents' sin. Children who had abusive parents or drunkards for parents will know exactly what I'm talking about. You did not sin, but you, you, you are suffering because of your parents' sin. It, is, it, has a, it has an effect on you. It leaves a scar. It, it affects you for the rest of your life by doing that. By by letting people experience or see the full consequences of sin, God is gracious because God gives you and me a visible picture, sometimes a living experience of how destructive, how awful and how sinful sin really is. He gives us, he shows us how bad it is so that we will turn from that and come to Christ. Again, thanks be to God that his, this type of judgment or the eternal judgment doesn't have the final say. Even now, if you repent and put your trust in Christ, that vicious cycle of destructive and generational sin can be broken. Christ didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for those who know that they are okay or know that they are healthy. No, he came for the broken, for the, those who have sinned against him. Even people like Paul that persecuted Christians. He came for the worst of the worst. Christ came for the wicked and the ungodly to save them. Romans 5 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. No, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not leave us. With our sin and the consequences of us, and He didn't leave us in our darkness. God cannot abandon us. Because he has already abandoned his son. On the cross for all our sins. I obviously don't know who is listening to me right now. Or who will be listening to this sermon in the future. But I plead with you. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself. Don't harden your heart against God. And his gracious invitation right now, God is inviting you. He's commanding you to come, to repent, to come to Christ. Turn to Christ. Look upon Christ. See him there hanging on the cross for all your sins. See him raised from the dead. See him ascended on high, seated at the right hand. See him coming again in all his splendor, all his glory. And see your own knee bowing before him. It is going to happen. Do it now. Bow now. Jesus promised all those who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Will you come right now? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are the God of justice. Your justice is unbending. Your holiness is unshakable. Lord, you hate every and all kinds of sin in all its forms with an intense, passionate hatred. But Lord, we we thank you. We praise you for Christ, for his work on the cross, removing your wrath, removing our judgment from us for those who believe in you help us as david lord to to humble ourselves first to pray to entrust our case to you lord you are the god you say vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord it's not ours let us give it over into your just and righteous and merciful hands father we pray that we would trust you in our prayers trust that you use prayer help us lord to align our priorities to for your glory that we might not seek Just a lot of prayer lists and prayers answered for our own um, glory, our own comfort, our own kingdom. But let us seek all these things for your name's sake, Lord. Let us seek missions. Let us evangelize. Let us pray for our families. Let us pray for this country because we have a burning desire and longing for more people to add their voices to ours and worship you, the only God, forever and ever. Oh, Lord, please burden our hearts for the lost. Please humble the lost, humble proud sinners, humble those who even right now are planning their next plot, planning the next riot, planning the next looting. Humble them, Lord. Help them see that they are but men. Help them see that they will not get away with anything, for you see everything and you hear every place, for you are in every place. Humble them, Lord, that you can be merciful to them. For you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word that gives us hope. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.